All right, we are back. Let's let's close out today's show with a little bit of science and other things, shall we? The uh, bumper music we started with, of course, is uh, more or less appropriate for this item, which comes to us from New Scientist magazine, noting that whatever else it might be, it seems clear at this point that the Loch Ness Monster is not a plesiosaur. Said the magazine, it has been described as a snake threaded through the body of a turtle, and some imaginative people think there is one living in Loch Ness. The plesiosaur, a marine reptile that lived 160 million years ago, looked like nothing alive today, with a neck that was two meters long. That's about six feet for those of you who are metrically challenged. The neck was as long as the body and tail combined. Well, scientist Leslie No of the Sedgwick Museum of Cambridge, UK, has explored the question of why the plesiosaur needed such a long neck. He's decided that they used these necks to reach down and feed on soft-bodied animals living on the sea floor, or at least so Noe told the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting in Ottawa, Canada last month. By calculating the articulation of the neck bones, Dr. Noe concluded the neck was flexible and could move most easily when pointing downward. The neck was a feeding tube collecting soft-bodied prey, he says, the small skulls of the plesiosaurs couldn't cope with hard-shelled prey. From this, he derived the disappointing news that, quote, the osteology of the neck makes it absolutely certain that the plesiosaur could not lift its head up, swan-like, out of the water. No, he says this rules the reptile out as a candidate for the Loch Ness Monster. But things look better for uh, oddball life in oddball places as regards the planet Mars... According to a Mexican researcher, Dr. Rafael Navarro Gonzalez, who went down to the Atacama Desert in Chile and examined the soil that he found there, it seems that uh, when we landed NASA's Viking spacecraft on Mars 30 years ago with an express purpose of testing the soil to see if it could find life, well, maybe the craft wasn't properly equipped to make that judgment. When Navarro Gonzalez took, uh, took samples of the soil from the Atacama and tested them by the same method, he got the same negative results. But we do know that life does exist in these locations. That's evidenced by trace amounts of organic molecules that re- register on more sensitive equipment. We would refer you to the web for more information on this subject. Uh, I did chance to fly over the Atacama Desert once many years ago, and I got to say, it uh, it sure looked like Mars looking down out of the aircraft. I mean, there was not a shrub to be seen, and yet we know there's microbial life that th- that that survives even in these driest of dry conditions. They don't thrive, they don't do real well, but they do manage to hang on. So uh, you know, we need to go back to Mars and check this out which is exactly what scientists plan to do in the next 10 years. They plan to uh, bring a piece of Mars back to Earth for examination. And uh, speaking of South America, I was quite tickled by an article in Newsweek, uh, October 30th issue, noting that uh, Bolivian President Evo Morales recently implored the United Nations to give the coca leaf a new life. As a former coca farmer himself, Morales has asked the General Assembly to focus on coca's possible future as the raw material for a lucrative consumer goods industry, not its nefarious present as the source of the international cocaine trade. 
Morales wants to double the 59,000 acres uh, that, that Bolivia currently sets aside to grow coca for legal uses. And armed with scientific studies, Bolivian officials are attacking the impression that coca itself is harmful to health. They argue that legal products could be a viable alternative to growing the plant for the use in cocaine. Since the year 2000, small companies have put out 30 different products. Coca bread and pastas, coca toothpaste, coca shampoos, ointments, candies, and liquors. One company now has a soft drink called Evo Cola in the works. I do have to say, from a medical standpoint, if you go down to the Andean republics, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia, you will find that coca tea is a staple. And yes, one does get a little bit of a lift from the tiny amounts of cocaine present in the beverage. I was informed when traveling around in Bolivia that you need 100,000 pounds of coca leaf to make one pound of cocaine powder. So this stuff is pretty dilute. Yet... It's pretty much the equivalent of your basic Starbucks shot of caffeine that uh, everyone seems to rely upon here in the U.S. of A. And we've given away this secret before, but I think we should do it again and let you know that every Coca-Cola you ever drank contained Coca. It still is Coca-Cola. It's just decocainized coca leaf that they use as a natural flavoring which is the exact equivalent of, uh, you know, a decaffeinated cup of coffee. It tastes like coffee, but it doesn't have the caffeine jolt. Noted the Newsweek article uh, (laughs) referring to the flavoring in Coca-Cola, noting it's an exception to the United Nations ban that many experts say was negotiated for Coca-Cola. It allows the export of coca from which certain active ingredients have been extracted, i.e. the cocaine. Noted the magazine Coca-Cola, which has long declined to discuss the, quote, secret formula for its signature soda, also declined to comment for the story in Newsweek. I don't profess to be an expert on, uh, on the, ver- the assorted virtues and vices of caffeine versus cocaine, but I do know this. If you overdosed on caffeine versus a therapeutic dose to the same degree that you did with cocaine, you'd be killed dead many times over. You can go to any 7-Eleven and buy some stay-awake pills that contain caffeine that can deliver a fatal dose if you are dumb enough to take the whole box at one time. Does this potential misuse of caffeine mean that we should ban it? Well, no. No. Caffeine remains uh, the world's most popular drug. It's basically pretty safe, and it works. And uh, so you will find, does coca tea if you travel down to South America? In, in really tiny doses, caffeine is pretty much interchangeable with uh, cocaine. In microscopic quantities, is pretty much interchangeable with caffeine. So, you know, we wish Evo Morales and uh, the Republic of Bolivia well with its effort to find, uh, you know, a new market for the coca leaf. A chemical I think we might be more concerned about is the pesticide methyl bromide. This was banned under an international treaty two years ago, excepting for uses deemed critical. Well, U.S. officials have now secured exemptions to the ban so that growers here in America can use it to kill nematodes and other soil pests for tomatoes, strawberries, and other crops. The Bush administration uh, worked hard last week to obtain international approval for this exception. 
This decision, by the way, came over the objections of European nations and despite the recommendations of the treaty's own technical committee. That panel had urged a more substantial cut in the U.S. request on grounds that other countries have proven that alternative chemicals and methods can successfully replace methyl bromide. Which, by the way, in addition to being a nasty pesticide, uh, destroys the ozone layer. In an even scarier story, in fact, a lot scarier story, it's been revealed that a new strain of the H5N1 bird flu has emerged in China and that the human pandemic vaccines which are now being developed will not protect against this new strain. Uh, The worst news is that nearly three times as many Chinese poultry are infected with H5N1 now as last year, meaning there's a greater chance of human infections. In 2004, an investigation by New Scientist magazine concluded that vaccinating poultry in China against bird flu can lead to the emergence of novel strains that can circulate undetected in vaccinated birds unless there are scrupulous controls. That now appears to be taking place. So we will continue to follow that story, which is of great concern to all of us on planet Earth. We're also going to continue to follow the story about the possible war with Iran. Uh, We refer you to Nancy Brand's Ward article in the Sacramento News and Review, which was about Daniel Ellsberg's appearance here in Sacramento, which we reported on for you uh, the week before last. On October 22nd, Daniel Ellsberg spoke to several hundred people at a fundraiser for the Sacramento area's Physicians for Social Responsibility and uh, had some pretty scary things to say. I would refer you to the article for an excellent uh, summary of uh, what some of those things were. The U.S. is talking about using nuclear weapons in Iran, and we should be very concerned that people are actually thinking that that is a sane, possible, viable military option. It's really not. And we need to keep talking about that. Uh, James Bamford, uh, we've, we've been trying to get him to come on the show. I think we're going to get him in the next few weeks, but he's a very busy guy. And again, we would refer you to his article in Rolling Stone on the next war, that being Iran, at least if some people get their way in the Pentagon. Also from the Things We Should Talk About file comes from some comments by Ross K. Baker in the Los Angeles Times, noting that there was a recent national summit on school violence. Baker noted that it was remarkable for what wasn't on the agenda. This uh, summit was convened after this horrific uh, shooting death of five Amish schoolgirls in Pennsylvania. The conference drew President Bush and Education Secretary Margaret Spellings. They and a group of experts discussed making schools safer by using metal detectors and training students in anger management. But one obvious topic never came up. The easy availability of guns. Said Baker, Republican politicians won't mention gun control for fear of jeopardizing their contributions from the NRA. Democrats have either been intimidated into silence by the gun lobby or bought off. Said Baker, the party's new strategy for winning back the White House, in fact, requires that its national candidates own a shotgun or two and proclaim their love of hunting. We should not be surprised if Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton shows up at the 2008 Democratic Convention togged out like Annie Oakley shooting cigars out of the mouth of her husband. All right, let's do a few uh, obituaries, as we like to do on this program, and we reserve them for this segment. The first is that of Benito Martinez Abrogan. Mr. Martinez passed away in Cuba on October 11th, aged about 120. 
Apparently, his precise age was something of a mystery because according to his Cuban identity papers, he'd been in Cuba since 1925, but his age on arrival was a bit uncertain. He'd just come over from Haiti. But there seems credible evidence he could have been as old as 125. Noted The Economist magazine, like most Cubans, he had no car. He biked or walked barefoot or waited for a fume-spilling bus with that patience and stoicism that calms down stress. Since food was rationed in Cuba, he did not eat much except what he could grow. Apart from all that, said the magazine, his life was not exemplary. He smoked until the age of 108 or so, cigarettes being handed out cheap among the rations. He never married, but chased many women. His fresh diet was mostly starchy cassava and sweet potatoes cooked in pork fat. Asked the secret of his youthfulness, he said he had never cheated a man or said bad things of other people. And he had a good socialist motivation to survive. He wished someday, he said, to shake Fidel Castro's hand. Noted The Economist, Cuba's cradle-to-grave health care had in fact done little for him. He did not consult a doctor until he was around 115. Anyway, I just love the picture of this spry old guy in, in uh, The Economist magazine and thought we'd better tell you about him. We'll probably never be able to establish whether he really was 120 or maybe even 125, but it seems he probably did hold the world record, which is acknowledged to be that of Elizabeth Bolden of Tennessee, who's only 116. And from the footnote figures in World History File, we have uh, the obituary of Trevor Burbick, found murdered a couple of weeks back in Kingston, Jamaica. He was a former world heavyweight boxing champion who in 1981 fought a 39-year-old Muhammad Ali in the latter's last professional fight. In a grotesque mismatch, Burbick pounded Ali into defeat, and Ali never fought again. In 1986, Burbick became World Boxing Council heavyweight champion after defeating Pinkland Thomas. But eight months later, a young Mike Tyson took the title from him in the second round of one of the most dramatic bouts in boxing history. Burbick fought some other noted heavyweights in his career, defeated John Tate in his uh, professional debut, and uh, 10 months later uh, lost a decision to Larry Holmes. Burbick never recovered from his loss to Tyson. After slipping down the rankings, he served 15 months in prison. After violating his parole, he was ordered deported from the U.S. and fled to Canada. In 2002, he returned to his homeland of Jamaica, where he remained for good. And we have an obituary of sorts to report uh, in, in the... Uh, the flaming out of Reverend Ted Haggard. We had talked about Reverend Haggard uh, at length in this program about a year ago. While the names uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson are pretty much household names in America, James Dobson and Teg Ted Haggard were possibly even more influential with uh, America's evangelical community. Haggard was part of a phone call every week to President George W. Bush. The Reverend Haggard was uh, placed on administrative leave from his 14,000-member New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and is actually now undergoing counseling for the fact that he, um, well, for evidently the past three years, he's been engaging in regular homosexual encounters with a male escort who also sold him methamphetamine. I kind of knew the Reverend Ted was going to go down pretty hard when his initial fallback excuse was, well okay, maybe I got a massage from this guy, and maybe I did buy some methamphetamine because I was curious, but I threw it away. I didn't, didn't use any of it. 
Anyway, we want to talk a little bit more about the fall of Reverend Haggard in the future and, uh, and the rather courageous figure of Mike Jones, the escort who decided that, you know, it just made me angry. He said that here's somebody preaching about gay marriage and going behind the scenes to have gay sex. Anyway, Ted Haggard is a very interesting fellow, and we're going to, you know, hopefully have more to say about him in some future program. We knew when we talked about him last time he was a guy worthy of some discussion, and, uh, you know, he remains that. All right, let's close the show with uh, an, an article I was quite amused by in uh, last week's The Week magazine titled The Last Word. It was uh, an investigation of certain science myths that are so enduring that people hate to let them go, but uh, editors at LiveScience.com went after them and, uh, and nailed a few of them. Let's just talk about the three that we've talked about on this program before. We talked to you previously about the myth that humans only use 10% of their brains. Well, the facts are that uh, MRI imaging clearly demonstrates, you know, even with fancy colors no less, that humans put most of their cerebral cortex to good use, even while dozing. Someone pretty much pulled that 10% figure out of thin air years ago, and it just doesn't seem to want to go away. We told you this one, which I never believed when I heard this one even as a kid, that the Great Wall of China is the only man-made structures visible from space. The facts, in fact, are there are uh, numerous man-made objects that astronauts can spot from low Earth orbit. Uh, they can see things like, you know, the Great Pyramids. They can see trains. When they first reported they could see trains moving on tracks, people at ground control didn't believe them. But it's, it's true. You can. If there's enough contrast, you can easily see a train from 200 miles up. But the full reporting of the myth was the Great Wall of China was the only man-made object visible from the moon. Well, <laughs> absolutely not. There's no way anybody can see the Great Wall of China or anything else man-made from the moon. At least not without a very good telescope. Not mentioned in this article is the myth about the fact that uh, people seem to go nuts and hospital emergency rooms go crazy when there's a full moon. I'm here to tell you, it just ain't so. And yes, I did follow the full moon cycles to see whether there was a correlation, and no, there isn't. If you want to fight me over that, please send an email at info at radioparallax.com. But I got to tell you, you're fighting an uphill battle on that one. But let's close the show with this one. The myth is that water drains backward in the southern hemisphere due to the Earth's rotation. Well, the facts are, and this has been demonstrated by studies done at university uh, testing labs, not only is the Earth's rotation too weak to affect the direction of water flowing in a drain... You can easily demonstrate by going into a washroom that water whirlpools form both ways depending mostly on the sink's structure. Actually, depends mostly on the motion in the water, not the hemisphere you're in. And yes, I've won bar bets on this one. If you want to wager on this issue, I'll be happy to take your money again. So again, let, give me some feedback at info at radioparallax.com. But, uh, you know, I knew when I was a third grader and I heard that story that it was false because I paid a lot of attention to what the water did when it went down the drain. Think about it. If the Coriolis force would counteract water going down the drain one way, then it would tend to slow down to a stop, wouldn't it? You ever see that happen? Me neither. 
That's it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced as All of Them Are by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>